You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Hello, Michael. Figured we'd uh, take advantage of my uh, mellifluous tones while I'm still uh, still dealing with the the rest of the Rona. Yeah, well, it's you know next week or next time we we talk, you'll sound like uh, Mickey Mouse on helium. But until oh, then, God, you know I've never had anyone describe my voice as that. I, I've always had people tell me, "Oh, Andre, you have a great voice for radio," and it's just like, "Yeah, okay." No, 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 no. What they've said is you have a great face for radio. Oh, shut up, Michael. <laughs> And anyway, I guess this this is part two of, of what I did on my summer vacation. Yeah. And what did you do on your summer vacation? I went to France. Oh, okay, yeah. Um and we we talked a bit about what I learned about Cabernet Franc, which turns out wasn't a whole heck of a lot. Although I uh, I did bring back a few bottles with me that I will be enjoying down the road. I mean that's the worst part about traveling with a with a pregnant lady who also loves wine. It's just like you 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 buy all these like great bottles and it's just like you can't touch them for six months. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, from the, from the Cab Franc discussion, you were not still you were not sold on Loire Cabernet Franc. I, I think you were I sold was on some, but yeah, you sold on the complete picture. I wasn't Whereas sold on the variety yet, but I think I got more out of my trip to the Loire. But I tasted probably more 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 wines from more wineries than you did. Oh, 100 percent came to Cab Franc. Hundred percent. So I, and, I could say that. I can see the style changing from what I'm used to. Also, I, I think it did cement Cabernet Franc's place in in Ontario. Um, like the, the the quality of the wines in the Loire Valley weren't completely off the charts compared to Niagara. I think if anything, there's more parity in in quality versus price in the Loire Valley for Cabernet Franc between there and Ontario than let's say Burgundy. Um, and don't get me wrong, I. As we've said before, I don't mind spending a few dollars on a bottle of wine, but, you know, the price that some of the smaller village in uh, and, and smaller Premier and Grand Cru's in Burgundy command, 100%, there's no way they're worth the money. Yeah. And yeah. there's my there's my segue from, from Loire Valley to Burgundy. Got it. Okay. So, you were in Burgundy for how long? I spent two days there. I did a, a quick flyby. A quick Fly by Burgundy. How many wineries did you go to? I went to two and did two tastings. Yes. So you really got a wide swath of Burgundy. I did not get a wide swath of Burgundy. And also Burgundy is just like, it's really hard. Like it's a big, it's a big piece of wine knowledge to digest, you know? I, I still find, you know, you always say that uh, that Italy is the big hole in yours. I find Burgundy is mine. And although I can sit with Thomas for hours on end and, you know, he has his maps and he, you know, this, that, and the other thing, and he shows this and he shows that and he talks about this and he shows you that little piece here, I still go, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? We, we really need to find a way to get our hands on some more like bottles the problem is like they're so they're so expensive for you and i to do like a throwaway tasting of and the thing is like even when i'm buying burgundy for my cellar and i'll, and I'll be honest i'm buying a lot of them at random where i'm hoping to learn but the interesting thing is even on this short flyby of a of a trip i found a few more correlations in style and regions to what happens in ontario versus versus burgundy and i don't know if i, I learned i don't anything. even know the right questions to ask about burgundy i think 
I think I, that's. I can ask all the questions that I that I that I have about Italian wine. I just don't know where to start when it when it comes to Burgundy. And 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 look again, bringing Thomas up because he's worked there. You know, he he references it all the time. I just get lost in that discussion. Well, it's tough that, like I said, to not have the reference points being accessible, right? Um, I did a tasting in the village of Gevry Chambertin. And the reason I went to Gevry Chambertin is I was in France on a Sunday. If you have never been to France on a Sunday as a tourist, it can be really hard. So anyone listening to this podcast who's never been to France on a Sunday, brace yourself. Uh, nothing is nothing is open. Uh, even restaurants, only about 50% of them open. Um, Sundays are fairly sacred to small business owners. Like they don't come in well, on their days it's off. It's a Catholic country still, is it not? Yeah, it's, it's an the... atheist Catholic country. I mean, no one in the country identifies as religious, but I mean, for them, it's just part of the culture to not work all the time. Um, and, you know, I tried to line up a tasting for the Sunday and, and nobody nobody would see me. And I'm 100% okay with that. So I found in the village of Jeffrey Chambertin, I can't remember the name of the producer. And um, I'll be blunt, the guy who was... Uh, guiding the tasting, I don't think could have given fewer craps that we were there. You know, uh, did a little bit of like the introduction, like who I am, like the fact that I'm I'm hoping to learn some stuff about Burgundy. Even then, just like a very disinterested uh, person guiding the tasting, shared the table with a couple of other eager tourists who were also from Canada, and frankly enjoyed chatting with them more than I did with the people who were pouring the wines. Um, but the uh, the wines I tasted were not terribly expensive were somewhat tasty but um bigger more muscular um you know heavier hitting on the palate and just like not my style of pinot like i found it even heavier than a lot of the oregon pinot that i do enjoy Hmm. so interesting so went up the went up the highway down closer to bone so bone is further south than jevry chambertin and uh connected with uh, Alphonse Patel, who is the son of Nicolas Patel of Maison Roche de Belen. And uh, thank you to the people at Nicolas Pierce for helping connect me with them and make sure that the tasting took place. Um, this is one where um, it was I didn't take any notes. I took one picture because it was just... Uh, Alphonse is in the process of going through his education to become a winemaker. And uh, we tasted every barrel of red wine that Nicholas Patel and Rush and have in barrel at their facility. And uh, did you stumble out? Uh, I had to spit because I was driving. Anya does not have her driver's license. But I did leave there Im- impressed. And also, I think the thing that I found most fascinating with tasting with Alphonse was it wasn't, it wasn't a one-way conversation. He was very curious about how Pinot tastes elsewhere and what's going on elsewhere, you know? I do. <laughs> did you step away from the microphone? I did. I was getting something. <laughs> Didn't mean to cut off like but that. I'm like, you know, he seems to be talking and then suddenly I just cut off. Stops. No, but I mean, it's, it's one of these things where um, I think, I think you see it at, at certain, at certain like higher, higher end producers where it's just like, you know, you, you need to kiss the ring when you go there. I got I got that vibe from Opus One when I was trying to book an appointment with them that um, it didn't fit with my schedule, so I didn't go out of my way to see them. It was clear they weren't that interested versus, you know, if we go back and take a look at some of the interviews that we've done on, on this podcast, like someone like Farrah Felton Jolly and Clinker Brick, where, you know, 
she's obviously curious of what's happening elsewhere. She was good enough to do Stump the Chump episode with us, right? That's our fir- that was our first uh, outside of Ontario winemaker or wine principal. Yeah, who did a Stump the Chump with us. But I mean, it's 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 just it's it's fascinating. I think when you're in a place like when you're in a place like Burgundy, you're talking to people who are not taking the pedigree of their region for granted, right? I, anyways, I just I just thought that was uh, that that was that that was fascinating, and um, honestly, some of the barrels that we tasted, it's, it's one of the things where I probably should have taken some notes or or more pictures, but um, you know, some very quality. As you I, said, you were on vacation. It was on vacation, and you decided that uh, you know I, I didn't see a lot from you, uh, social media wise. You were uh, you did a little bit, but uh, not as many reels, not as many posts, not as many. Not as many anything. Um, okay, there there was one wine that was a complete a complete standout. Like now that I'm putting this all together, because honestly, the experience was more memorable than a lot of the wines. But um, so Maison Rush de Belen, they um, they make their own wine, but they're also négociant. So we tasted some of the whites that they had in bottle ready for market. So they have their domain wines that they make, and they have the négociant wines that that Nicholas Patel buys and then sells, and. The Merceau that 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 Nico makes and that Alphonse has his hands in on as well too, is just so profoundly accessible from the onset. Like I I love Merceau whenever I can get a chance to open up a bottle because it's, it's too expensive to open on the regular. But you know when I think of Merceau, I think about that bigger, more vanilla, more tropical fruit, and it was just like. The balance and elegance of uh, it was the 2019s that we were tasting that were open from a previous tasting. The bottle had been open for a day or two already, and like, oh man, Michael, I wish I could have shared this this bottle with you. Well, so since you've been to Burgundy, where do you think Ontario stacks up to? Now, granted, you've only done two this time, but is Ontario still holding its own with Pinot Noir? Is it is is Thomas right to say that you know uh, Ontario and Burgundy blah blah blah, or are we in a on a different level that's you know lower down than than Burgundy or or what? I think Tom I think Thomas is right, but we need more time. Um, you know, you don't see anyone putting old vines on a bottle in Burgundy until your vineyards are forty or fifty years old. And let's face it, we don't. We don't have any Pinot vineyards that are of that age yet, but um, like I, I think, I, well, hold on a second. I think we do. I think um, Lowry Vineyard is of that age, but okay. Uh, other than Lowry, uh, who else we got? No, but I'm, what I'm saying is, we are not going to see a lot of vineyards of forty to fifty years of age just because of our winter kill. Well, uh, and I don't that, think Burgundy gets you know minus thirty six. No, but uh, I mean like we do. But I mean, you're at the point in Burgundy where they're dealing with, uh, you know, the Russian roulette of what Mother Nature can deal with them with late Correct. frosts they're, they're and things like that. They're dealing with spring frosts. Yeah. And, I, you know, they, that can be, that can be uh, combated um, very, very much like we do with, uh, you know, the, the fans in the vineyard. When they realize that, look, the look of the vineyard is not as important as keeping the vineyards and put a fan in the middle of the one where there's going to be a lot of frost damage. Then they're going to figure that out and they can combat it. Uh, until they do, they're going to have their, their frost and uh, damage that way. We have figured out how to combat frost and how to combat, you know, that kind of thing. We have not really figured out a way to combat minus 36. That's fair. Completely fair. 
And that's that's why we are never going to see a large amount of 40 to 50 year old vineyards, because if we get minus 26, minus 28, minus 30, you know, we're going to see enough damage where 20 percent, 30 percent of the vineyard gets killed off. And if it becomes a, 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 you know, a not a rare occurrence, but now a continual thing every single year, uh, you know, that I heard this year that uh, that a lot of the old vines didn't come through. Uh, well, oh, and, uh, and for com- and for completely different reasons, I, I think we need to do some more. Um, it might be worth getting someone from the the college on to talk about that because, like, January was cold, but it was in a, a fairly steady cold. Like it was minus eight for the whole month. We didn't really get hit with that severe minus eighteen snap that we usually get once or twice uh, a year. Well, or once but or twice in Niagara the Lake, they did. They did get hit by a a, a good hardy cold of minus 28 or minus 30 if i'm not mistaken and that's really where the lot of the damage got uh, got hit or got got uh, happened it wasn't the minus eight it was the you know sudden dip into the minus 20s yes that did its damage yes uh well and i heard as well too just the amount of moisture that was still lingering in the soil did a lot of damage to the roots of uh of a lot of the a lot of the vines because the- oh, we got we had 240 millimeters in October. Like, I mean, there's no way the ground's going to, you know, suck that up, uh, especially in October. Yeah, 100%. So, um, there's no way to dry that out. I guess to answer to answer your question, um, yes, but also the wines in Ontario are still priced very reasonably compared to comparables from Burgundy for the most part. Um, I mean, for example, Thomas's Pinots that come in at $45 where... I mean, it's fairly consistent in quality. Same thing with, if we want to talk about Lowry, the five-rose Pinot Noir that comes in at $60. Or Flat Rock Gravity at, at $35 or $40 at, at this point. It's still well below what most entry-level Burgundy sells for. Yeah, and I know that uh, we talked on the last podcast that, uh, uh, you know, Henry Appellum, uh, again, entry-level, twenty-four ninety-five. I think it was just the estate. Um you know, very good value, very good Pinot. Um, like, I mean, we we have we have some great Pinot producers. Uh, are they underpriced? Probably. Uh, but do I want them to go out and raise their prices right away? Nope. Uh, I still want that that value wine, that value Pinot. Well, but I mean, and that's I it. Think though people I'm... can discover the wine a lot easier if it is at a price point that they're willing to pay. Okay, so maybe here's a question that I can I can put in my back pocket to um to, to research as well. So, like I understand the economics of what it takes to make a bottle of wine and get it to market now. Like that's what I've been doing for the past five years. Um, you know, I don't enjoy the fact that the when pigs fly rosé that's made with Pinot Noir is twenty two dollars a bottle. But frankly, I need to sell it at that price so I can cover my margins and make a few dollars to continue to grow the company. Like, I'm not running a non-profit company, but at the same time, like, you know, my wines aren't priced so aggressively that I'm going to be able to build a $5 million estate in the middle of Niagara right now. Like, we have modest margins off of off of what we're doing. Um, you know, that being said, Pinot is, is hard to grow, for one. And I mean, the price is set by the government. I can't help but wonder if maybe some of the Pinot Noir growers who have more established vineyards that are contracted out to larger wineries, if they had the ability to negotiate their prices, might be convinced to 
push their vineyards for quality as opposed to as opposed to crop yields? I don't know if that's a question that uh, that is an issue that, or not. That, is, that has always been my my problem with the way that Ontario sells grapes is that it's all about yield. It's not about yield. It's not about quantity. It's about quality, and that's that's something you know we can get quality. And I think the negotiation has to happen between wineries and growers. But you know the problem with our industry has always been the growers think the wineries are trying to screw them, and the wineries think the growers are trying to screw them, and probably they're both doing to each other. Well, I actually like having been in this. I don't think anyone thinks anyone's trying to, to screw each other i think it's just it's really hard to make a dollar when the government has their hands in every step of wine creation like i mean how ridiculous is that that the government is involved in setting the price of grapes on top of once you you know once the bottle leaves the cellar even before that like the level of taxation from start to finish like it's just insane the amount of of well it's all that the a, government it's a, has it's a floor price right that's what the that, that's what it's supposed to be and then you can negotiate for you know dropping fruit uh, you know, oh, but you're, you're, you're technically, quality, blah, blah, you're blah, technically but, not supposed to do that. Well, then, you know, Ontario is yet again, screwing the pooch. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, I, you said you didn't know if you were asking the right questions about Burgundy. I think you asked like a hundred percent the first right question without needing to taste Burgundy to get it, you know? Um, yeah. Um, you asked about, I guess you're asking about Pinot Noir there. If you're talking about Chardonnay, and this isn't me having the blinders on, um, you know, tasting Nicolas Patel's Merceau, and then the second place that I tasted, uh, that I've been to a couple of times, just because I, I find uh, the woman who runs the estate incredibly um, inspirational to the business. It's uh, Christian Bergeret et Fille. Uh Their winery is located just outside the city limits of Nolay, uh, which is about a half hour away from bone. Um, she makes uh, a couple of St. Aubain premier Cruz that she sells for 17 euros and 50 centimes a bottle. So less than $30 Canadian, a bottle, uh, Chassin Montfichet, uh, like just the village wine for 23 euros a bottle. So once again, and did you, and did you end up buying some of this? I bought a lot of wine from here. They were supremely oh. affordable. And if this, if this is where you want to talk about, um, quality and correlation. The Chassin Montrachet that's being made by Bergeret et Fille that is supremely affordable and frankly, just by geography, uh, the the owner of the winery, Clotilde Bergeret, could be charging a little bit more for these bottles, but is choosing not to. Um, and tasting these side by side with Ontario, I don't think you're going to see a huge gap in quality, especially when you're talking about the Saint-Aubain Appellation as well. And we're talking about Chardonnay now. All very interesting. You and your Chardonnay. It's all well, about Chardonnay. You know, I brought some bottles back with me. We've got to wait at least six months, but I would love to sit down and, and taste them with you. But the other thing about visiting this place, I brought back a bottle of uh, Oat Coat de Bone, um, just like their her standard entry-level red burgundy, at uh, 10 euros a bottle. And it is outstanding. Very yummy wine for less than $20 Canadian. And so I how, know, much, how much wine did you end up bringing back? Just out of curiosity. I brought back about eight, sorry, seven bottles of wine and two magnums. Did you, uh, did you declare them or just quietly uh, tell me that nothing? I always declare everything when I come back. It's just, not it's not worth the hassle. Like you and I both have the opportunities to travel uh, because of what we do from time to time. I know that if I ever get caught, they're going to make my life a living hell every time I come back. Always very true. So, Andre's lesson 
number one of the day, always declare all your bottles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess just to, to, to finish up the, the bit on, on Burgundy, um, I, I feel that we're on the right track with, with Chardonnay. And I think there's a reason why when they started I4C 11 or 12 years ago, there was a very clear reason for that. And, um, and the uh, reason not to go to the I4C is because you can get COVID. <laughs> I don't even have anything to say to that. Nope, you shouldn't. Wrap her up, Andre. If anyone wants to uh, to teach us more about Burgundy, Michael and I want to learn. That definitely isn't going to be my uh, my last trip there, but I feel like every time I go back there, um, I pick up a little bit more knowledge. And thank you to uh, oh, I did a I did an awesome uh, walk in tasting at Bouchard Na Fils. It was a very small, like quick, like flyby. But I also want to thank them for receiving Anya and I as well. I picked up a bottle of Merceau from there because it was just a lot more affordable than buying it from the LCBO. Uh, I'm Andre Weinerview at Andre Weinerview on social media is andrewinerview.ca. And I'm uh, Michael Pincus of michaelpincuswinerview.com. You can find me on social media as The Grape Guy, as Michael Pincus. Find me on YouTube uh, for my uh, my videos. Obviously, it's Andre and I on this podcast. And Andre, there's nothing else to say but uh, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.